Hello. Hi, Rebecca. It's Beatrice. Hi, Beatrice. How are you? I'm good. And how are you? And what have you been doing? I am fine. And I have actually been obsessing about Grace Jones this week. Ooh, nice. Yeah, I love Grace Jones. I've loved her a very long time. And um, we watched, there's a documentary on her from a few years ago by Sophie Fiennes. And it just reignited my deep love of Grace. It's so, like, she's just so phenomenal. And I've started reading her memoirs. I'm only about oh. a third through. Oh, that sounds... they're so interesting to me. So, I, I mean, I don't really know much about her. I know the famous photo, of course, um, where she balances. Yeah. And then... Every time someone says Grace Jones, I think slave to the rhythm. Um, but then I don't really know that much. Oh, and La Vie en Rose. Um, oh, my goodness. All marvellous. But where, where is she? Is she from New York? I don't actually know She's that much Jamaica. about... She's from ah. Jamaica. She's Jamaican. Mm, I didn't know that. And then that. she moved to New York when she was kind of, I think, like early teens, sort of adolescent. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things I really love about her is she's kind of seamlessly global, you know, because it was it was really interesting in the documentary because it cuts between her performing, which is incredible, to her sort of hustling to get Sly and Robbie to turn up or Robbie to turn up um, to make a record, and then her back home in Jamaica visiting relatives and friends. And it's really, really interesting how... Like, even her accent changes, even when she's speaking English between America, American English, Jamaican English, and then even when she's in Paris and she speaks English, her, it's slightly French-sounding. Mm. So it's it's like, and it, none of it seems fake. It all seems authentically part of her. And it's really interesting in her book because she talks a lot about how she was, like, making herself because she comes from this very kind of strict... Um, family background, very religious family background, mm -hmm. and she had a, quite an abusive, um, like step grandfather who brought part, many of the children up for, like five, I think five out of six of her siblings were brought up by him, and so really sort of tough early life, very very disciplined, and it's as though she's kind of retained that but also really broken out of it and it's as though each experience she has she kind of adds it into her persona mm. and the thing like just the I love 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 the beginning of the documentary because it's slave to the rhythm it's her performing it live and it cuts two performances together mm -hmm. so you see her first of all and she just looks otherworldly she looks incredible She's on stage and she's wearing a gold death mask, like a gold skull mask that covers her face. And then a really full, really fluid, um, kind of purpley blue, like the color of the night sky. It's almost like an opera coat mm -hmm. of really papery thin silk that's billowing. And she looks incredible. And then it cuts to her also singing the same song in a black velvet really sculpted um it's like a sort of it's like a swimsuit but it's like a corset if you see what I mean mm -hmm. it's yeah, yeah. like a little bodysuit with a really sort of intricate filigree gold mask that just comes down to the tip of her nose and then in the in the first outfit 
first costume, she lifts the mask at one point. So there's this gold skull, like a crown Mm. on her head. And it's so incredible. And I think that's one of the things I really like about her is that it's so kind of, it's like she kind of takes the otherness that is imposed on black bodies and subverts it and owns it so completely mm. that she kind of throws it back at the audience, which I think is amazing. Yeah. So I just love her. Mm. I love her. Do you know, um, so when is the documentary from, roughly? I think it's it's from a few years ago. I'll look it oh, up. Okay. Um, mm. But it's really fascinating and something I found really interesting because um, I've got this really nice book um, on, it's from 2017, so only a year ago. Okay. And... I've got this really nice book on Issy Miyake, and I always kind of link the two of them together. But she talks in her memoirs about how she did this show with Miyake, which was a real kind of landmark one in 1976 called um, Issy Miyake and 12 Black Girls. So it's 12 black models, sort of international models. And it was on a, a theatre in Tokyo and then Osaka. And it was her first catwalk experience. And I think they just did it like night after night. It's really hard to find much else about Mm. it. But what I think is fascinating is she talks about how Miyake really taught her how to kind of use her presence on stage. And like to look at Kabuki, which is about exaggeration and eccentricity, but with control and kind of discipline. Mm. And it's quite kind of minimal at the same time as being exaggerated yeah. it, I mean. mm. and that really is fascinating when you think about how she performs that that you think of the kind of extravagance but when you actually look at what she's doing she's often quite still and yes. she's just allowing her own kind of you know charisma to take over the stage mm. and kind of channel channeling that which I think is amazing yeah I I I what do you say about stillness? I, I do think of her almost more like a like a statue. But also there is this um, clip from from the French, you know, equivalent to the BFI or so, where yeah. where she performs on TV and she wears this pink um, pink dress, long dress, and there's a long and she, she sings La Vie en Rose. Yeah, so obviously oh, I she know wears. The one you yeah, and she wears a pink dress. I think there's sort of quite a few of her in this in this yes. particular dress. But there's a there's a long sequence, quite a long sequence, where she doesn't sing and she just dances, and yeah. it's incredible because she's on this stage and you you get you look at her and you think she's just dancing for herself. That she's just yeah. she looks like you know she doesn't care about the people there. It's just she's just dancing, and I yeah. and I thought that was really amazing. Just more than almost the other parts of that that sequence is when she just dances yeah no she is I think it's kind of like she's the sort of she's she's like the kind of perfect kind of model as well as performer because I think the best models are are fascinating kind of using their bodies as a work of art Mm. kind of really fascinated in how they can collaborate with different people who see them different ways and how they can respond and act in relation to that and I think you know, it's really interesting what I've read so far, where she talks about, for example, working with Hammett Newton and how he was really good at lighting. So she really picked up how to be lit and how to respond to lights from him. And she talks about like the, the art director of the show, the, the Isimaki show I mentioned, is Eiko Ishioka, who did the costumes for, um, oh, what's that vampire? Inter- not interviews, 
the Dracula film. You mm-hmm. know, they're like really incredible. Do you I, know the one I mean? I it's think like I've really seen it. Yeah, mm. yeah, really amazing costumes. And she she also then like like she's involved with her stage show in two thousand and nine, which a lot of the footage from the Sophie Fines film is from. So there's this kind of continuity, but also this this kind of it's on because she talks about how when she she met Jean Paul Good that she understood that he wanted to like strip her down and rebuild her. So he's kind of seeing her as this amazing um, figure that can be rethought, and mm. that she kind of understood that and was already doing that herself so it was this kind of collaboration and that he was I don't know if he did train as a ballet dancer but he was really interested in ballet so that stance that she does in the famous yeah, the photo. um, photograph yeah. is a is a quite balletic one but she mm. was also thinking of kind of African disruptive templates um, mm. and also like and like kabuki so so both sort of African and Japanese traditions of things which are disrupting the norm but in order to find a greater kind of creation and discipline mm. and oh so interesting and can I tell you another example of her costume of course <laughs> may I please please there's this other bit where she wears she wears a lot of Philip Tracy hats yes mm, I, I knew that yeah yeah and she, she's in just this black corset which I think is Jasper Conrad and then she wears a bowler hat, which is completely covered in rhinestones. And there's green laser lights bouncing off the hat. And she's just like letting it happen. And you're just like, oh, my word, Grace, that's amazing. And does she say anything about makeup? Because I think she that's... She does, because again, she really learns, like from each makeup artist, she's kind of really... It's like she she's so interesting because like all her life it's like she's you know she's looking at the Supremes or she's looking at her mother coming back from because the parents moved to Jamaica first and she says you know her mother coming back and seeming really glamorous in American clothes and French clothes and she's kind of piecing together all these elements and then like she becomes a hippie and then she gets her hair shaved and she talks about sort of like having really abstract hair which again I think is thinking about yourself as a work of art that mm. you create. And then there's this brilliant footage of her doing her own makeup for the show where it's very kabuki. It's very kind of African, it's very kabuki, and it's she's really kind of um, using like red, gold and black all over her face, but really beautiful so that then when it's under the lights, it's so kind of pronounced and sculptured. But it's again because she understands. It's like sort of Marlene Dietrich, you're learning from Joseph um, von Sternberg about mm. how to how you can be lit and how you can kind of manipulate the way you're seen through makeup. Because yeah, her makeup is really great. Yeah. Mm. Does she mention she does who use... she works with, or maybe you haven't? But on her makeup, mm. I think it's possibly different people for mm, different, at different times. Yeah. Things, yeah. Mm. And there's this really kind of toe curling bit where she's she's like doing various things to make money to produce her own record and she um does this tv show i don't know what it is in france and it's so tacky it's horrid and she's like looking off the chart in like a black tuxedo with a long sequin black sequin jacket and like a mask hat and you know she looks so kind of like weimar amazing (laughs) 
and then she goes on stage and it's just like you just want to die for her because they've got like about six girls it's la vie en rose and they've got six girls in like i don't know lingerie popsy outfits oh, no. they're like wearing little pink bras and knickers mm. and little see-through marabou trimmed mini negligees oh, and then afterwards she's just saying you can't do this i'm gonna die you cannot you cannot have them and then he's saying like the, the french tv man just doesn't understand what she's saying and she's saying i look like a lesbian pimp of a brothel <laughs> if i go out there like this and they're just like that you cannot make and then he's saying, so I get rid of the, the dancers. And she's saying, oh, but I feel so bad for the dancers. I feel bad for the dancers, but I just can't perform with these girls. And it is it is just excruciating, the mismatch. And it really emphasises the kind of power and self-fashioning mm. that she represents to then have them next to these kind of little candy floss male ideas of what, you know, La Vie en Rose might be. <laughs> it's just... Oh, my God, yeah. I wonder what we can take away from that. I don't know. In terms of, yeah, yeah. We should think of Grace Jones when we feel uncertain in our own identity and think, what would Grace do? That's a good point. And if someone wants us to do something that we feel is not right. If someone is treating us girly when we do not wish to be treated girly, then we don't allow it to happen. Okay, and we think okay. of Grace Jones. That's good. Think of Grace. Yeah. What would Grace do? Which mask would Grace wear? Exactly. In that situation. Mm. Yeah, because she is just, she's so good. You have to watch Oh, no, I definitely will. And the bio- and I love the bits of her in Jamaica as well. And the biography sounds great the biography, as well. I'm, I'm really enjoying that. Oh, and the other thing I really love is she takes, she's got these beautiful, great, great big silver boxes like cardboard boxes mm-hmm. that she's taking with her on the flight to jamaica and you're like what has she got and she's got all these amazing hats for her female relatives oh fantastic. one of them wears them to wears one to sing in church and it's just so good oh that so, sounds yeah. amazing oh i definitely watch that yeah it's so good it's so good but what have you been doing well i've been um my, what i've been thinking about is very different um I've been thinking a lot about decaying clothes. Oh, fun. <laughs> yes. Not fun. I know. Really. Melancholy, um, maybe. Yeah, melancholic. So it's partly because within maybe the span of a year, two people, which I know is not that many, have um, asked about what how we deal with you know clothes that are stained or de- decaying at the museum. Oh, right. Yes. And then um, there was this display at the um, London College of Fashion, the Fashion Space Gallery, I think it's called, um, which was also with Amy Delahaye and Jeff Horsley, which was also um, had clothes in it that weren't pristine anymore. Um, so I just, and, and then we, you know, we already talked about at some point about visible mending. Yes, and, yes. And I just want, and, and I think that maybe isn't related, but I remember when I went to the Lanvin exhibition at the Galliera, they had quite a few clothes, dresses that they couldn't obviously put on mannequins, so they were lying down and then they had an angled mirror on top. Oh, I remember that, yes. Yeah, it was really clever because they looked then like they were sort of standing, if, if you see what I mean. Yes. But I, I, I was so surprised because because I thought, oh, even they now think it's okay to show something that 
isn't in the state that you can put it on a yeah. mannequin but that maybe is a sort of slightly different thing I'm and I'm just I've just been trying to work out a whether it is people are particularly interested in it at the moment and then I was trying to figure out why but I haven't really got very far with that um no, it's really interesting though, isn't it? Because it, it really, it does link to what we talked about with visible mending and it does link to what we talked about a few weeks ago um, when we were, do you remember we were talking about the um, Emily Spivak book? Oh, yes. And mm. about like sort of treasuring particular items from your wardrobe, even if they're really battered and worn to death. And it it's really fascinating, I think. Didn't Judith Clark in her Spectres exhibition have a section where she had some dresses that were really decaying. Oh, I can't I remember. Mm, mm. I think so. And again, it's that sense of that's what happens to clothes. So why do we hide that? Mm. Cause I, I was, yeah, I, I was um, also wondering, I was trying to figure out whether they're, and I'm sure I'm not the first one, but trying to figure out whether they're parallels to when people were in the, into the picturesque and, and, and ruins. Oh, interesting, um, yes, yes. But, sort of nostalgically yeah, but, interested in decay. That's so interesting. But I also wondered, you know, I think that was in sort of early 19th century, and I, I, I have a feeling some people say it was a reaction to the Industrial Revolution and, you know, mm. sort of antidote to that. But I, a, a picturesque ruin is quite different from a garment that is, stain because you know someone was sweating or something it is yeah. it's quite a different thing and, and I'm it is it is but I think there may be yeah maybe there are links maybe I don't know maybe this is too trite but like when you were saying about the industrial revolution I was thinking about the kind of perfection of screens ah and how everything gets even out evened out on a screen mm. um Oh, I generally, I think at the moment, you know, we talked about makeup before. Of course. You know, this the the flawlessness you have to achieve mm. these days. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and kind of excessive grooming to the point where it's denying the body. Yeah, and you look like a, a, a doll, really. Um, yes. And you're having a sort of artificial silicon face. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah, I don't know whether it's the other side of that. Um, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it kind of links to several different things. It like that we've mentioned the visible mending, the kind of interesting in, interest in the autobiography of clothes, mm. and also quite a kind of um, like me focused idea of of what does this garment say about me and my life, and mm. kind of how does it show that. But I do think you're onto something as well with the idea of ruins. I think there is perhaps a growing sort of almost like an assimilation of that idea into the way of looking at clothes of the kind of layers of the inside of a clothes that you, of a garment that you might see because it's worn away and I don't know and those kind of traces of life mm. yeah that are in garments because is there like a is it just a kind of cultural thing that museums kind of think we only put you know even that phrase museum quality yeah garments you know even that phrase it's embedded or is there an actual written down thing saying we will only display perfect or, or you know what i mean kind of no i think clean. it it depends on on where you are and obviously what and, and it depends on what what you what your exhibitionists say um so right. 
you know, if, you, if, if it's about a designer and you want to focus on their work and their vision, then, then having something that is worn to death m- might not work with that, with, you know, with, 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 with yeah. what you're trying to say. But um, if it's about, maybe that is a different example, but sometimes clothes are also sort of relics and then, you we know. We thinking of your Charles the First. Yeah, for instance, or... Um, so it, it depends a bit. There, there, it basically, there, it isn't written down and it, it changes. It, I think it's different in a social history museum to a fashion museum. Um, so that there's sort of different That's attitudes. True, yeah. um, so, but even, even for us, so for a long, for a long time, we, we wouldn't have displayed anything. I think we, we would display things flat or on a board if, if, if they're not good enough to go on a mannequin. Um, but usually they're still in quite good nick. It's on, only yeah. recently that we, we had we had a little display about Waterloo, and there was a ball gown that was supposedly worn at the famous ball in front, you know, the day, the evening or few few evenings before yes. the battle, and that couldn't be on a mannequin. So my colleague displayed it in a in a box. So, and maybe we wouldn't have done done that before. When I mean, it seems such a small thing, you know, it is. But it's really interesting, and it and it. It also seems to be more progressive to do that because it's reflecting the reality of clothes and maybe it's also part of looking at everyday dress and valuing more than elite Western dress and elite Western ideas of perfection. I mean, it also makes me think of, you know, like Andrew Bolton at the Met, at the Costume Institute at the Met, Mm. he likes to collect things that are direct from the designer. So they've maybe been on a catwalk but they haven't been worn yeah. by a consumer, by a wearer, so that you kind of completely remove that trace. And obviously that, that's not a social history museum, mm. but it's kind of interesting to allow that to be part of what fashion history is. Mm. Well, for it, for us, it's the complete opposite now. If there is no wearer and no story, and um, then then we almost wouldn't wouldn't take it, which maybe isn't right either. You know, we also of course need to represent the fashion industry in London etc so there's all that the other thing I was sort of thinking about having worked in a place where there were you know royal clothes or clothes of eminent people that there's also that's also quite interesting how that is dealt with you know with with some clothes that are quite old um it's okay if they have um, sort of traces of the wear, but if it, yes. you know, Diana, Princess of Wales garment, you, you don't want that. So, um, oh, interesting. Because I was going to say to you, is that kind of the relic idea again? But obviously not. Yeah. Although I do remember there was one velvet dress which had velvet is so easily, you know, stained is maybe yeah. not the right word, but if you you need to be really careful with well velvet and there seemed to be a little mark there and the story was always that it was the hands of um, one of her sons um, on on the oh, gown. Really? Yeah. So I don't know whether that actually is you know is right, but so in that respect, that particular mark was was fine. So it's. It's odd, but it's it's almost not that so much. It's more what I'm interested in. It's just really like, uh, yeah, like we've just said. It's why why now? Um, yes. Why why is there this interest interest now? Um, yeah. But I do I mean, think. Bit... Sorry, go on. I do think like it has something to do with this emphasis on perfection in mm. all sorts of other areas, and maybe also the other thing I was wondering is, um, you know, there've been so there've been rather a lot of shows in the last years about sort of designer shows, designer houses shows where everything is 
amazing and um, perfect and clean. And so maybe I wondered whether it was also a reaction to that more, more, more from the people who actually work, work in these places. I don't know. But what were you going to say? No, I was going to say, I suppose like in design history and anthropology, there's the last five, 10 years, there's been probably 10 years, there's been more and more interest in surfaces and as well, hasn't there? That's true. Mm. Yeah. And I know students often ask me whether in museums, whether they wash the garments, (laughs) whether you wash the garments. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. You do actually. Not as a policy. I mean, I know you do sometimes, Mm. but what is the policy on when you get, when you get a new arrival? What do you do? So, um, again, it depends. We we did take in a whole lot of clothes but, um, of someone called Sebastian Horsley, and um, they weren't freshly cleaned um, right. for various reasons. And there we decided that the... The, the sweat that might be in them is more detrimental to the clothes than washing, you know, than what washing right, might do. Right. So in that instance, so that they might rot the clothes. Yeah. So in that instance, right. we 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 actually had them dry cleaned, which is something we really rarely do. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, it's some. It it has a lot to do with will it take it? You know, can it take washing? Um, how bad is it but it's a, a lot of the time is um, we don't do anything we freeze things and then we don't do anything un, until they right. go on display and when they go on display uh, it's sort of weighing up what they look like what they can cope with um, and also what we want to say so um, actually would be quite nice it's it's quite interesting it's always nice for me when people come and ask about these things because it's something we do without really talking about it we sort of discuss yes. it of course but we don't discuss the ethics as much maybe right. because we've discussed them you know way back at some point and yeah, we yeah. sort of now all just un- understand or uh, think the same thing but it's good when people come and question it and then you think mm, is this really the right thing what we're doing here and so that I, I really appreciate appreciate that and maybe and also yeah, you, okay. you go. No, I was just going to say, is there such a thing as a good state? Um, I guess, um, I'm not sure. Um, in terms of, there's always the difference between the the actual conservation and and of the garment and, and what it says. So in terms of, I see. you know, in terms of it being good, it's probably always potentially bad for the long-term survival of the garment or that particular I patch. See. So in that respect, it's not good. But it, it, I guess it can be. It depends. It can add to the, to the. Yeah, obviously, can add to the story of the garment. But yeah. And have you got any particularly interesting stains in your collection? Um, I'm sure you sit there at work thinking, hmm, what I, are my top ten stains? No, I think the <laughs> the other thing is, I think for me, which is also interesting, when when I spoke to the people, it, it's the researchers. It's for me, this is mostly it presents itself as a problem. Right. You know, it's not something. It's something I want to make go away a lot mm. of the time. Um, because it doesn't, you know, it's bad for the garment. It, 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 it you know, it makes it, it makes things more difficult. Every, it makes everything more difficult, you know, on yes. a practical level. But obviously, I, I then also can think about what does it say or how does it add to to the to the history. But on a lot of the time, it presents itself as a problem that needs to be solved somehow or managed. And um, 
what I find, and what maybe that's going off into another thing. Um, but maybe the last thing I want to say is that there's sort of whole sways of history of dress, particularly, say, the Edwardian period, which are almost impossible now to do an exhibition about because all the garments are in bad in a bad state. Um, um, so I always because of the materials mm-hmm. favoured. So we have these two amazing dresses that Lucille herself gave um, wow. to them. Yeah, I know it's amazing. We have a we have this letter yeah. signed by her, and no. and um, and they were worn by two musical comedy stars and. They are both. They're not in a terrible state. You could you could restore them to or conserve them. I should say to to a state that they could go on a mannequin. And as we said, don't necessarily have to go on a mannequin. But you know, to do, just to do a Lucille exhibition would be really difficult because it's the it there are all these fine fabrics like all these layers of yes, chiffon yes. and gauze and 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 lace. So all these fine fabrics and then often. Um, coupled with really heavy beaded tassels that hang from somewhere and finally you know the 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 fabric has given away or there's heavy embroidery and they've all and then also I presume I also wonder maybe different hygiene products maybe deodorants oh that's true that's a really interesting point yeah and you you in in sort of older ball gowns you get dress shields but with these really fine gauzy things that doesn't really work so well I haven't seen them so much, maybe in Edwardian clothes, but I might misremember. But anyway, so that that is quite interesting that there's sort of whole areas of dress history you almost can't present in the usual way because yeah. the majority of garments are are not in an amazing state. That's so interesting. Mm. Wow. So yes, so that's what I've been well, thinking about. That is something to think about. Yeah, maybe that's it for this week. Maybe. Yes. I mean, we've we've gone from Grace Jones to Lucille. I think that's a journey in itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, great to talk to you. Yeah, great and, to talk uh, to we'll you. We'll speak next week. Yeah. Bye. All right. Bye.